Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, good morning, Journey Church. Those of you who are with us, some of you for the first time, second time, we're so glad that you're here. We're glad for those of you who are joining us online or maybe even sometime later on this week or who knows how far from now, but uh, we're excited. My name's Jim. I'm the lead pastor here at the church and uh, excited for us to be experiencing and sharing in, once again, family worship. This is something that we do the first Sunday of the month. It's something that we do. It's not an accident. We, uh, we actually believe in kids' ministry. We believe in nursery ministry. But we also know by our theology what the scripture says. We also know by studies and research that it is super important for there to be times for all of a church to gather together to see the generations for our children. It's one of the, the indices that indicates children owning their faith later on in life is that they were around mom and dad. They were around mom and dad in ministry, in worship, and in service. So, welcome. Here's the deal. If there's some distractions later on, I want you to do two things or three things. So if uh, you're getting older like me and you're like, hey, I, I like it calm. I want my space. I'm stressed out. I didn't come to church to be distracted by babies crying. I want you to do three things. Number one, say, thank you, Jesus. That is the sound of life. Number two, Jesus, make me more like yourself. He loved children, and they did not bother him. And number three, oh, dear God, prepare my heart for communion. Okay. Okay, so that's that. We are back in our sermon series on the atonement. Five Old Testament passages that prophesy, that illustrate, that foreshadow, that explain the nuances of this profound and wonderful gift that we have that we are about to celebrate as we come up to Easter in our calendar, international calendar around the world, and something very sacred to us in our faith and in the scriptures. The atonement that took place on Good Friday, and we're looking into the nuance of all that it means for us as individual believers in Jesus Christ, or those of us who are considering faith in Jesus, considering a lifestyle of conforming with the paths of the master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to understand the atonement. So we have a couple of definitions. This morning, I actually rolled the, the, the Hebrew, the Greek, and the English into one definition for you. And I'm reaching back to Tyler's excellent sermon from last Sunday in a definition that he gave us, a theological definition. So here is the, the rolled together, English, Hebrew, and Greek, to cover over, that's Hebrew. Make an exchange, that's Greek. To make payment for wrongs done in order to restore a relationship, that's actually the, the uh, English word that showed up in the 16th century. At one mint. To bring two back together and make them at one. And then Tyler's definition, our definition from last week, God's work on behalf of sinners to reconcile, reconcile and restore peace between sinners and himself. And so how does God deal with sin and sinfulness and all of the damage caused by sin? 
at-one-ment, the atonement. Uh, our first look was in Genesis 3, and if I could like put the sermon into one word, it's covered. And we looked at, at three different kinds of cultural wiring. Uh, there's the, the fear-power culture, and there's the shame-honor culture, and there's the guilt-innocence culture, and we're all a mix of those, but we have a strong suit, and the atonement covers all three. That in the atonement picture given from Genesis 3, and the, the, the animals killed for coverings for Adam and Eve, a covering for guilt and shame and fear. The next week was Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, and we discovered there the atonement means provided. My most valuable treasure I can give to the Lord, and then even my very life I can entrust to the Lord, and what the Lord does is in exchange for my most valued treasure and in exchange for my very life, he provides a substitute in my place. And then last week, what Pastor Tyler taught, Exodus 13, if I could do it for him, for us, um, he didn't do that, that's okay, but if we could just say spared, the penalty of hardness of heart, demonstrated and encapsulated in Pharaoh, and many of the Egyptians had hardness of heart. Who is the Lord that we should obey him? Hardness of heart, and yet for those who would soften their heart and listen, there would be a sparing from death. They would be passed over while all the firstborn males of men and beasts would die. But for those who would kill the lamb, the dead roasted lamb on the table and the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentil. And all those who would exercise at least that much trust and do the do, in the morning, their sons would live. They'd find them alive. Through these pictures, illustrations, types, and foreshadowings, God is not just telling us the stories of redemptive history. He is telling us our stories, our own journey of faith pictured in these stories as the New Testament teaches us. But here's my question for today. Are there any practical, real-time, current-life, tangible ramifications or is this like a secondary thing, like when we know this, we're going to feel different, and so we can step out in faith more? Or are there real life, here and now, tangible benefits of the atonement? Or will I need a booster shot every six months? Is there something permanent here that addresses the problem, and it's done? And that's what we're looking at today, one chapter later than the Passover from last week. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to Exodus chapter 14. How does the atonement impact my daily grind? Let's give you a little context, starting with Joseph and 70 sons and daughters coming to live in the land of Egypt, specifically in Goshen. A place for them to rest and heal and grow. 
but it also became the place of their imprisonment. A burning bush, an 80-year-old reluctant leader. God says, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Ten plagues later, culminating with the death of all firstborn sons, except those who have properly observed the Passover. And then the scripture records 600,000 Jewish men and women and children. So most conservative estimates, there are no fewer than 2 million Jews leaving captivity, and they're doing it, fleeing from Egypt at night, in the dark, and now watch this. Through doorways marked in the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, what a picture. Thousand years or more, 1,700 years before the Roman method of execution called crucifixion was even invented, embedded in this account, the children of Israel walking through the door, marked by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, immediately cast into another trial where they would wonder, God, are you good? God, are you here? God, are you with us? Oh, Lord, help us to see what is embedded in chapter 14. Help us to understand it's for our lives. That there is something for our daily grind. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So through those doorways, and then listen, verse 1 through 4, we're going to read the whole chapter broken up in parts. So kind of get the story, stop, we'll talk about it, go back to the story. You ready for this? Then the Lord said to Moses, they're already wandering in, in the desert. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haheroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of Israel, and I want you to hear this, because I think it's going to resonate with your personal life. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Have you ever felt that? I'm just wandering and I feel like I have been shut in. This is how Pharaoh's seeing them. This is what he's going to say in his heart. And God says in verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Now, and then listen to this. This is powerful. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God wanted to do something great here. And don't think he, he wanted to kill all Egyptians. God wanted to be known by even these outsiders, these pagans. God wanted them to know him. God loved the Egyptians. Don't miss it. But he will also judge them if they continually harden their heart. That the Egyptians shall know all that I'm the Lord, and they did so. Now, interesting. The most logical route out of Goshen, where they were heading, 
uh, and where God wanted to take them, if I could just do the map this way, because it's easier for me, I can transcribe sometimes, but, but you have Egypt and Goshen, here's like where we think of Cairo, here's Goshen, and uh, straight across there's land going up to Canaan. There's a problem that's mentioned in, in, in Exodus 13, and that is God did not take them immediately in that direction, why? Because he did not want them to encounter the Philistines. Because they were not yet ready to face such kinds of war. So God in his gentleness and kindness takes them on an even less logical route. He actually leads them down to the south to the sea where they're actually hemmed in by the land, the desert, and the, the, the Red Sea. And that's where he says, he actually intentionally says, go camp there. And when you look at it on a map and you, th you think about it, you go, huh? Battle with the Philistines? You can certainly take them, but the ocean? So that's what they do. They trust Moses and they follow him down until they're backed up against the Red Sea. This is what it says in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? We've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. They're the finest army in the entire world at the time. The, the, the chariot was a technological advance that was beyond mind-blowing. And he's taking 600 of them. 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were, were going out defiantly. Two things. One, remember from last week, Pharaoh hardened his heart and hardened his heart and hardened his heart. And halfway through chapter 13, it says God hardened his heart. And the quick lesson is there, be careful with that hard heart thing. Because someday God might actually just help you get what you think you want. And so God is being a gentleman. You want a hard heart? Let me help you with that. But not after he did it for himself many times over. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Israel's going out defiantly. They're pumped. They're like, yeah, take that. It reminds me when I was uh, like seven years old and I was on the Tigers in Little League. And me and Norman Wing were the worst players on the team. We're si sitting on the bench. It's after hours. It's really dark. We're playing a game. I don't remember who the game was against. But one of ours hit a pop fly into right field. And the right fielder on the other team lost the ball in the lights. And it came down out of the sky and smacked him right in the face. Dropped him like a sack of potatoes. And Norman Wing jumped up off the bench and said, we got one of theirs. It's like, dude, shut up. You're not even playing today. He was defiant, going out, yeah, we're beating you, and we took your guy out. Okay, and this is the attitude of the, of the Israelites. Yeah, some translations, uh, they go out with a high hand. Yeah, don't ever try to hurt us again. Until, look at the next verse. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, 
and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Belzephon. Now watch what happens here. High hand, defiant, take that! When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. I mean, these are conquered people. They've, they've been born and brought up hundreds of years in captivity and just being beat down. They're traumatized. Do you really want to mock them and make fun of them and say, oh, they had such weak faith? Or do we identify with them? And that there are times in our life when we're faced with circumstances and, and our re response is so unreasonable. Why? Because in certain areas of our lives, we are conquered souls as well. And our nerves are raw. And each of us is individual and, and unique in what that trigger is. Someone, so-and-so doesn't like you. Ah! How dare them? Everyone has to like me. You know, I, I, any number of things. An IRS letter. Tis the season. Your taxes were rejected. <laughs> Your tax return. That happened to me this last week. It's kind of fun. But uh, it's accepted now. It's all good, I think. But the point being, we have triggers. For me, that's not one. It, it might be for you. Any number of things. And you see these people go from willful, defiant, high-handed, we're out of here, take that, you dirty rats, to they fear greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now watch this, this is a trauma response. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Yeah, and it seems unreasonable, but aren't we so much like them? Triggered. Raw nerves. Whatever it is that... Uh, God, I saw you. I, I, you did something great, but this is different. Well, I just forgot. I just, just fight or flight or freeze. This is what they're, they're dealing with. It's a, it is a real test. It's a real test. They really are in a desert. They really are backed up against the sea. They, they, it is really true. The danger is very close. And if God's not real, if all those other things were just uh, coincidence... They're dead meat. Death or recapture are the only options from the human perspective. So go easy on them. And remember how much like them we are in those crisis points of our life when our individual triggers get set off. You see, it's our lives. Same story, different details, but same story. And guess what? Every single person of God, every single man or woman of faith, every single human being created in God's image can relate to this. Let's think about David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Psalm 23, I believe it's verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's not like saying it doesn't exist. Oh, glory to God. He's going, no, this stinks. This is scary. This is the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. And guess what? It's, it's tribulation, but then it, there's also our perspective on it in 
man, sometimes the tribulation just comes so near to my particular weakness, almost like it's custom designed to set me off and to test me. You ever have that experience? What, whatever that might be in your life, you might be a kid here and it's the bully at school. You hate school, not because you hate learning or your class, it's the bully, and you gotta go back there, and you've, you maybe you've been afraid to tell someone or you told someone, and it got back to the bully, and now it's worse, and maybe the whole class knows now. It's just miserable. Maybe um, you're a college student and finals are this week. I don't know when finals are. Seems like about the time of year. Finals. And, man, I still have bad dreams about college, and I now have my doctorate. I have nightmares about high school. Why? Because I lived in this kind of awkward discomfort. I'm failing the class. I didn't do my homework. And now it's too late to drop the class. I have that nightmare. I lived that nightmare at times. And maybe that's something that you're facing that it's just messy. Maybe it's, it's more serious. Uh, maybe it's marriage and you just go, I don't think this one's going to turn out okay. I never imagined, never imagined the D word, divorce. And now you are walking in a path You've been divorced. It looks like you're going to get a divorce. And you're just going, it just feels icky. You are wandering in the, the wilderness has hemmed you in. Maybe it's not marriage and divorce. Maybe it's a heartbreaking singleness. You're in love with her. She'd be perfect for you. She's the right age. She's single too. She will not reciprocate. Or there's not a she. There's just no one. And your singleness in and of itself is heart-rending, heartbreaking, soul-crushing. Maybe it's your career, a demotion. Maybe it's subtle. Maybe it's overt all the way to the point of firing and so many other things that you just go, hey, God, I get it. The atonement, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm healed. When I die, I will go to heaven. This is just the stuff of life. Is that what category you just put it under? It's a secular existence. Bad stuff happens. Or is there something of the atonement for the daily grind? Here's my question for you. What test are you facing today? What test, what, what, where does it feel like in your life that the wilderness has hemmed you in? Something, anything? In your life, you go, this is not my favorite thing to talk about, actually. Is there something of the atonement for you? Because instead of just wandering and confusing and saying, this is my religious life, my spiritual life, this is my belief system, this is Sunday church time, I want you to understand that our lives were never meant to be diced up in that manner. And I want you to understand that the atonement applies to it all. And that there's something of the atonement for what you're living in and dealing with right now. It's just that you can't see it. We live in a fog. It's confusing. And that's the problem. The, the people of Israel, they're confused. They can't see what God's up to. They don't know that he's very intentionally bringing about a great thing. See, God has intentionally placed them in this crisis in order, and we read this, in order to bring himself glory, to turn hearts and minds of the Egyptian people to himself, and to bless his people. 
Even when we can't see it, that's what God is up to. He's going to glorify himself. He's, he's drawing other people to him. And he is strengthening and blessing individual, individual persons and collective people. Got this last week in a prayer uh, email from one of our missionaries, Dave and Lisa. Leaving their last name for good reason, off. But um, David... Uh, was quoting Oswald Chambers, and I go, oh, we're talking about that this Sunday, so here it is. A little bit truncated, but listen to what Scottish minister Oswald Chambers, most famous um, of all daily devotionals, my utmost for his highest, although this is in a, in a um, devotional Bible. This is what he, he writes. At times in spiritual life, there is confusion. There are very few things that are black or white, right or wrong, and until we recognize this, we are apt to, to be insolent or indifferent toward anything in between. A fog is as clear or as real as clear sunshine. If we don't pay attention to the fog, we shall come to disaster. There are things in the spiritual life which are confused, not because we have disobeyed, but owing to the very nature of things. The confusion arises from being unschooled spiritually. It is not a question of right and wrong, but a question of God taking you by a way which in the meantime you do not understand. And it is only by going through the confusion that you will get at what God wants. See, God is up to something very intentional in our lives. Through all the muck and mire and confusion, feeling like we're wandering and the wilderness has hemmed us in. Even when we can't see it, God is up to something. Here's the deal. When in the fog, when in the trial, when in the trigger, there's a set of skills that we can learn where if we will exercise these skills, we will be transformed. You ready for these skills? And, and we want to embed us in Israel, in their moment. That's the perspective from which what we want to learn it in real time with them. Here's the skill. Look backward. Look upward. Look forward. Okay? One at a time. Here's the first one. Look backward. Look backward. We want to be transformed. We want to learn what it means to, to, to live through the crisis See the glory of God. Not to say it all turns out perfect and roses every time. Okay, I'm not teaching prosperity gospel here. I'm saying you will develop a skill by which you are transformed. You just see the world differently. They would see the world differently. Look backward. God has always been there. And he's been working. And you have those stories already in your own life, in the life of your family, in the life of your spiritual mentors, mothers and fathers in the faith, in the lives of the saints, stories in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. God has already been there. He's there in the midst of the fog, and God has not changed. You feel hemmed in. Wandering in the wilderness, you are merely in the middle of another story of grace and transformation. 
you're just not at the end of it to see the, the God story. You're just in the middle of it. And so whatever the crisis is, and maybe it's way too long. You go, it's a, it's a 20-year wilderness. Well, they did 40. Okay, these can be really long. It could be a lifetime of a disability that is actually wounding and hurtful. But you're just in the middle of the story. You don't have the perspective of the finish line yet. God has always been in the story. Chances are, though, you have instances in your life, crisis stories, and now you have the perspective of time, and you go, wow, God did it. And you look at those stories, you go, yeah, he's good. Look, he did it last time. Why am I so freaking out that this is so different? And yet we do it over and over and over and over again. I'm 52. It's take, when will I stop wondering, but this one feels different, but this one feels different, but this one feels different, and all those different keep turning out good. When do we stop and go, look backwards? And if it's not your life, look at all the stories of faith in the scriptures. Look at all the stories of faith in our church. Take a measurement of two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. God is good in this church. So many times that we thought, oh no, it's time to shut it down. It's not going to go. It's not going to work. Look at this. God keeps showing up. And it's the same story again and again and again and again and again. And he's always glorified. People are drawn to him and we are blessed. When will we learn to look backward and take stock. Think about the people of Israel. The Passover was just a couple days ago. Everyone who didn't have the blood on the doorpost and the lentil, the oldest son died, and your sons didn't. Go back a couple days from there, couple weeks, plague one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. God's power all over these stories. I mean, it just happened. But now there's a new chapter, new story. Come on, guys. Oh, let's not be too hard on them, remember? We're just like them. So we look backward. Look at God's faithfulness. Look at God's goodness. And the story keeps turning out good. Matthew Henry said this about even the faith of our fathers. You have a trouble about your own story. You look back, people in your life that know other believers, or go to the scriptures, and this is what he says, mercy to our fathers are mercies to us. We reap the benefits of them, and therefore must keep up a grateful remembrance of them. We stand upon the bottom of former deliverances and were in the loins of our ancestors when they were delivered. Much more reason have we, typo, have we to say that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we were redeemed. Amen? So look backward. Second, look upward. God is at work right here, right now, surrounding your life. Can you see it? In Exodus 13, one chapter before, verse 21 through 22, we discover that there is a fantastic supernatural evidence of God's presence right there with them. All they have to do is look up. 
It says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them from the people. So just look up. Where's God at work? You, you go forward in the text and you see in verse in, in 14, chapter 14, Moses says to the people in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Open your eyes, look up. God's at work, pillar of fire, cloud. Look up, but look what God is doing right here. Can you see it? Because even when we're in the midst of that crisis, God is at work. Pay attention to that work. See the salvation of the Lord. Verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on, uh, the sea on dry ground. And then the Lord's going to harden their heart. And uh, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, he says there. God is at work. He's exercising his power. He's in control. Verse 19. This, this is... The same thing is in verse 13, but the pillar of fire in the cloud does something unique and different. Like God says, don't miss it, I'm here. They're freaking out. But it says in verse 19, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was cloud and dar the darkness and lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God himself, you could see God standing in the gap. You could see it. Let me tell you what I do in my life. I used to be a strict, hardcore, two-chapter-a-day Bible reader. And I'm all for it. I'm all for it. For it. If you're not reading your Bible, you're, how in the world do you survive? But I'll tell you, so often now, if I have an hour in the morning, sometimes I'm just pray, praying and pondering and meditating and asking questions and listening. Not mutually exclusive from the scriptures whatsoever. I'm not going to write the 67th book of the Bible by what I hear. I'm listening for the ways and paths of God. I'm communing with him. And those of you who just get up and go do the next thing, just on the treadmill, I have no idea how you survive your life. I'd be a dead man by now. Without my daily time of just quietness, sipping coffee, listening for the Lord, uh, often reading scripture after that time, but sometimes it's an hour later and I still haven't gotten to the scriptures. Not saying that's always the scriptures are in me. And I'm looking for the Lord. Where is he at work? What's he doing in my life? I got plenty of unanswered questions in places where I feel like I'm backed up against the ocean. And how much more to be silent. Exactly what God told Moses to tell them. Be quiet. Be quiet. Look up. Here's the last one. Look forward. Look forward. We have the storyline. And I encourage you to read it. 
But we have the storyline of God opening up the Red Sea through Moses and his staff. And the people going through on dry ground. And the Egyptians being emboldened by, uh, emboldened by that and going, looks like it's dry ground, let's do it. And they charge into the midst of the sea. And the scripture says that in the morning watch, in the morning watch, the Lord looked down from the pillar of cloud and fire. And he confounded them by mucking up their wheels in mire. And then God told Moses, take your staff and command the sea to make a watery tomb. And he did so. And the chapter ends with the Israelites being delivered once again. And from their perspective, they just see bodies upon bodies upon bodies of the Egyptian warriors washed up on the banks of the Red Sea. What we see here is a picture of atonement. Atonement. You say, where's atonement in that? The Jews and the Egyptians were a lot alike. In fact, let me say they were, they were exactly alike. It wasn't like the Jews were so godly. They were so noble. They were so believing that they were better than these Egyptians. They were all rascals. If you, if you operate in that mentality, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm the good, it's pretty messed up. You see, I, I think uh, hedonism, like just going after pleasure and, and, and booze and sex and drugs and just partying hard, Oh, those are so sinful, such sinful people. I go, level one sin. Like you're a high schooler that never grew up. Kindergarten sin, pedestrian, sophomore-ish sin. You want expert sin? Try self-righteousness. Uh, that one takes talent, and yet we're great at it. Where's the atonement? Here's the deal. These... These suckers all demanded or deserved death. Every last one of them deserved to die in a watery grave. The Egyptians merely paid the tab themselves. The Israelites, someone else paid the tab. Again. And whereas the Passover was an atonement from death of the firstborn. The Red Sea crossing was an atonement unto life for everyone. Atonement. How do we know this? How do we know this? Because a thousand years later, the people of Israel are in another captivity in Babylon. And the years of their captivity are up. And they're about ready to make a new exodus. In Isaiah, the prophet speaks for them as the mouthpiece of God and says this. Now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, when did they pass through waters? Hmm. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers. 
When did they pass through rivers? 40 years later, they passed through the Jordan. By the way, it corresponded to Passover again before they went into the promised land of Canaan. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Uh, The scripture says the same thing about the heaps of water uh, in the Red Sea crossing and the heap of water upstream in the Jordan crossing. Same word picture. I will be with you. It shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. In the flame, you shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Um, The verb in Hebrew is in perfect tense, which means simple, completed, past action. Better translation, I believe, is I gave. I gave Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? Because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you and I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I bring your offspring from east, from west. I will gather you. The atonement. I have exchanged Egypt for you. They pay for their own sins and iniquities. You pass through into newness of life. Um, We got to get to communion. I got more, maybe podcast, because it's mind-blowing. Jesus fulfilled all this with his own crossings. Jesus, the Passover lamb, also crossed the Jordan River, went into the desert for, for 40 moments of time, and then into the promised land of glory in eternity after the final crossing of the cross and the tomb. For us, Jesus did this, and where Israel would fail, he would succeed. And so what, what's the atonement? What's the, the practical takeaway for us today? What, what are we trying to do when we look backward and we look upward and we look forward to the typologies of Christ fulfilling all these pictures? What's the practical takeaway for my daily grind and that, that thing which makes me feel like I'm hemmed into the wilderness? Here's your bottom line for the message today. The atonement means that from now on, God will always be with us and for us. One scripture, Romans 8, 31 through 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up freely, how shall he also not with him give us all things? The atonement means for the daily grind that God is with us. And for us, God is with you and for you so long as you have walked through that doorway covered in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, Father, let our hearts believe this is true for whatever it is we're going through, whatever waters we are passing through, for whatever fires we are facing. And may we glorify you, may others be drawn to you, and may we see ourselves transformed in the midst of it as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. 
We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.